I'm Chad Main, the founder of legal services company Precipient, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal technology and innovation in the legal industry. In today's episode, I'm talking to Otto Hansen. He's the founder of contract rating app TermScout. On today's show, I'm talking to Otto Hansen. He's the founder of a company called TermScout. That's an app that uses machine learning to analyze contracts. But TermScout is doing something a little different than some of those other contract apps out there. TermScout uses a technology to rate contracts. Specifically, it analyzes contracts to determine whether they're in line with industry standards for whatever particular contract type is being analyzed. From there, TermScout then determines how vendor or customer friendly the contract is. And based on that, it gives it a rating. The goal of this rating system is to cut down on contract negotiation and eliminate the back and forth about terms the parties are probably going to agree on anyways. That way, they have more time to focus on the provisions that are probably going to require a little more back and forth. Just this month, TermScout released data on 500 click-through and online agreements offered by some of the biggest companies in the world. The data they release shows how favorable these contracts are to the customer or to the vendor, and this data also has information about what the contracts are supposed to do. All this data is available for free at TermScout.com. Now, TermScout is not the first startup that Otto was involved with. He's a lawyer, and he practiced for a few years before launching TermScout. But prior to that, and prior to entering the legal world, he worked at a startup that was making ski gloves. It was his experience at this startup that actually inspired him to go to law school. Earlier in my career, I helped run a ski glove company called Empire Attire. And yeah, we made ski gloves. And the company was founded by some amazing, prolific pro skiers in the ski business. And, um, you know, they had good followers and, and fans. And we, you know, knew a lot about, you know, what was exciting in that particular business. And we made ski gloves and sold them into that industry. And our, you know, primary piece of intellectual property, as you can imagine, there's not a lot of patents, a lot of innovation in ski gloves that we tried. Your primary piece of intellectual property in the apparel business is usually your trademark. And, uh, we had a trademark issued on the brand name Empire Attire and um, thought that that was probably good. But we ran into some legal issues with, uh, there's another company called Empire with a Y, who sent us a cease and desist letter and basically said, hey, our, we think our customers are getting confused by the similarities between your brand and our brand. And uh, that's that's a big no-no in trademark law. And basically, it was a sort of straw that broke the camel's back on that business. It was, you know, potentially a pretty big challenge for us to deal with, again, on our core piece of intellectual property. And as the entrepreneurs, we were just frustrated by the whole experience. I mean, every entrepreneur deals with immense frustration in dealing with legal issues, right? Yes. But when you're a startup, you're like, you have very limited resources and every dollar that goes to lawyers always just has this sort of feeling that like, ah, so... Both of us practiced before we launched our companies, and it's funny you bring that up. I've never had the opportunity to talk really about this. You know, that paid our bills for a long time, but now you're on the other side. You're the client side. I agree. Like, every one of those checks to your lawyers is like, ow, ouch. It's hard, but it's a necessary evil, right? You also can't just cowboy it up and and just run afoul of the law. The law is complicated. It's hard to follow, especially when you're doing things like selling securities, you know, raising money. That's you know, we have important laws and it's important that we do follow them. So you have to hire lawyers, you have to work with them. And as an entrepreneur, you have to basically figure out where do I spend my very limited legal resources 
to get the most bang for the buck or rather mitigate the most amount of legal risk? You know, we spent a lot of time thinking about that question and struggled with it and apparently underspent on trademark protection. And, you know, that was just the whole thing was just a really frustrating experience um, for me as a young entrepreneur, seeing how much money we spent on legal, seeing how even after spending what we felt like was a lot of money, we still ended up with bad legal results ultimately. And when that company ultimately failed, I decided to go to law school. What was it about that experience that motivated you to go to law school? I felt at the time like if I'm going to be an entrepreneur or a business person, I need to understand the law better so that I can be a better consumer of legal services or maybe even not a consumer of legal services because maybe I'll just be able to do a lot of that legal work myself. So you, when you went into law school, you still had that entrepreneurial bug in you. you it sounds like you were still planning on launching a company. I was. I was. And interestingly, I got into law school and I started in law school and I actually really enjoyed the law and decided, you know what, maybe maybe I'm just going to maybe I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to go try it out. And um, I did well in law school. I got a job with an amazing um, large regional law firm in Denver, Davis, Graham and Stubbs, one of the best in the city in the in the Colorado area. And, um, you know, they hired me into their corporate law department. So I said, hey, I'm going to go try this out. Went there, practice, you know, typical big corporate float pool, like did a little bit of securities, a little bit of, you know, uh, corporate finance, and then um, a fair amount of startup work because I had that background, had worked in startups and the like. So got to experience the other side of the table, like it sounds like you did, um, helping startups try to navigate those issues. And, you know, um, one of my professors in law school, Bill Moose, told me while I was in law school, he said, Otto, if you want to be a great lawyer, you have to be on the cutting edge of legal technology. You have to you know, be constantly asking yourself, how can I deliver effective legal services more efficiently? And typically, the answer involves leveraging better process technology, et cetera. And I took that advice very seriously, especially coming from the background that I just described of being a client who was really frustrated over and over again about what we were spending on legal. So when I went to practice law, I ended up you know, trying out a lot of legal tech solutions and trying really hard to figure out how can we deliver better services to clients, like I'm sure you did, Chad, because I know your background is, uh, you know, as, as having formed an, an ALSP, you know all about, you know, the, the need yep. to implement process and technology yep. and the like to deliver services more efficiently. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what was it you're practicing? You're working on this, all, all this legal tech. You're focusing on processes. When do you decide to make the jump back out of law into, to launch TermScout? So a few things were happening in the background while I was practicing and on this quest to deliver effective and efficient legal services. The first was a client of mine, now famously, um, a client who shall go forever unnamed, asked me to prepare their terms and conditions and privacy policy for their website. And it was a, you know, a set of contracts that basically all of their users were going to click accept to when they went to use this web application. And I asked the client, I said, how aggressive do you want me to be with these contracts? And the client basically said, look, Otto, we know that nobody reads click-through agreements. They're just clicking accept over and over. And because no one reads them, we want you to make these contracts as aggressive as humanly possible. Basically, gouge their eyes out with this contract. And it was this first moment for me where, you know, I had a really hard time coming up with a rational response to that because 
frankly, that is the rational response. If no one's reading your contract, you might as well get you know everything you can get in that contract. Make it, I win, you lose, essentially. And that's what this client asked me to do. And, um, and that just really sat with me as like a, the system felt broken. At that moment, I realized that the whole doctrine of contract law, this whole idea of like freedom to contract, the idea that our governments, our laws are reluctant to interfere with our freedom to contract. The law basically says if Chad and Otto enter into a contract, we are very reluctant to, you know, intercede in that, you know, unless it's for something illegal or, you know, you know, in violation of public policy. Basically, the law says to adults, to consenting people or businesses, we should respect those contracts. Well, that made a lot of sense in the 1700s when most contracts were negotiated instruments that people were thoughtful right. about bring into. It makes a lot less sense today where we live in an economy that is built on click accepts, contracts of adhesion in many cases. We don't have any meaningful choice about whether or not to sign them. And therefore, we're not spending much time actually reading them and understanding them. And therefore, all of us are bound by hundreds of contracts that we have no idea what we are actually bound by. That was the first big part to me that just felt very, very broken. What year was this? When did you start to have the seeds planted in your mind to, to launch Term Scout? So this was 2018. Um, that experience probably happened early 2018, somewhere in there. And it, I, I wasn't actually planning on launching a business, Chad, but I, I showed up at a global legal hackathon, again, following the sage advice of that professor, Bill Moose, trying to stay on the cutting edge of legal tech, went to a global legal hackathon event that had a, a, a stop in Denver, Colorado, and showed up there. And I didn't know what I was going into. I didn't know what I was signing up for, but basically ended up signing up for a, a hackathon where we were challenged to solve a legal problem over the course of a weekend and pitch a solution to a panel of judges at the end of the weekend. So I recruited a couple of people there, found like a team basically on a Friday night. And then we spent the weekend solving this exact problem. Basically the solution that we envisioned was basically a neutral third-party intermediary of contracts, a party that could be trusted by the world to look at the contracts that we're all signing and help the world understand which of these are reasonable and which ones are out of this world, which are the ones where the business promoting the contract took the approach of no one's reading it, so let's gouge their eyes out, and which ones are actually pretty reasonable and fine. And that was, you know, the original idea of Term Scout. And we pitched it at this hackathon and ended up winning in Denver and then in regionals and then the international finals in 2018. And, and that's when we decided to start a business. If I recall correctly, you started working on this in 2019, but actually didn't open the doors until earlier this year. Is that right? Yeah. So 2018 basically won the hackathon, spent some nights and weekends. 2019, we raised a little bit of friends and family money. I was still working at the law firm uh, uh, most of the time through 2019. Yeah, 2020 was really the I, what I consider to be the, the real beginning of Term Scout. We got into Techstars Boulder, an amazing um, startup accelerator program here in Colorado, raised some more money as part of the accelerator program and you know really started to bring the team together that is now the team that is just doing really amazing work in this space. When we come back... Otto gets into detail about TermScout's contract rating process. We need to do more with less. That is the key takeaway nowadays from almost every survey of in-house counsel. But what if it didn't have to be that way? What if you actually could do more for less? 
By combining legal expertise and technology, Percipient enables legal teams to get more work done for less. Buried in contracts and sales is frustrated with turnaround time? We can help with that. Did you just get hit with a subpoena and reviewing 100,000 documents and files will tax your resources or cost you a small fortune in billable hours? We can help there too. Our team of legal professionals leverage tech and project management principles with the right amount of human oversight to deliver precise, efficient, and cost-effective legal solutions. Whether it's legal operations and contract management support, subpoena compliance, or document review, Percipient is your partner in really doing more for less. Percipient. Legal services powered by technology. Okay. We're going to get back to my conversation with the founder of TermScout, Otto Hansen, in just a second. But before we get back to the interview, as I always do, I want to let you know that at tlpodcast.com, there's a dedicated episode page for every episode we do. On this page, you'll find more information about our guests and links to some of the stuff we talk about. If you want to subscribe, you can find us pretty much anywhere you get podcasts. Also, if you like what you're hearing, if you like hearing stories like Otto's startup journey, I hope you tell a friend about us. All right, let's get back to my conversation with Otto Hansen. I noticed on your website, this is interesting, I want you to expand on this, you don't say your apps, contract automation, or, or any of those buzzwords. You very specifically say that TermScout is a contract rating app. Explain that. I think it's a different angle that a lot of other companies aren't offering. It is a very calculated decision on our part. We are of the belief that the world needs contract ratings. We take for granted the fact that contracts are the backbone of the modern economy. And it's actually really good, we think, for people to click accept contracts. We think that contracts should not be slowing down commerce. We need them. They are also a necessary evil. You know, we need rules governing the relationships that we enter into. We need to allocate risk, et cetera. So contracts are this necessary evil. And really, the world just doesn't have room or energy or time to go negotiate everyone. So our vision, our belief is that the world of contracting is optimal when it's done on a click accept basis. And one of the ingredients that we think is necessary for contracts to be comfortably and safely click acceptable is contract ratings. It's that idea I shared earlier about the world needs a neutral, you know, independent arbiter of contracts. And our contract rating system is our first stab at bringing some level of objective sort of neutral ratings to contracts. Give us your, for lack of a better word, your elevator pitch of what TermScout does. I know it serves both users of contracts and companies and clients, but also it helps the vendors that are issuing the contracts too. So what does TermScout do exactly? How does it fit in? How does it help? So for anyone who deals with contracts as a regular part of their day-to-day job, we help them develop tools, processes, et cetera, to make sure that they are a small part of their daily job to accelerate the contracting process, to make contracts get out of their way so they can spend more time doing the more value-added stuff in their lives. So what that means in practice is if you are a B2B software seller, you know, where every time you sell software to a, a, a company customer of yours, they need to sign a contract, we help you make sure that your contract is reasonable and in line with market. Because the worst thing that can happen is your customers are constantly redlining your contracts, slowing down sales, you know, slowing down your path to revenue, costing you a bunch of legal fees. So we can help you make sure your contracts market, and we can help you communicate to your customers that you've worked with 
term scout, a neutral arbiter, a neutral, neutral party to make sure that it is market. That's where the badges come in, right? If I'm a vendor and I work with yeah. you, I can get a term scout badge that says, hey, we don't really need to dicker over this contract. It's industry standard. And I got this term scout seal of approval. That's exactly right. Term scout is issuing badges to those contracts that we deem as balanced or customer favorable. So we every contract we look at, we measure, we answer objective questions about the contract. Does the contract have a limit of liability that is greater than or less than 12 months fees? You know, what are the exceptions to that? Does the vendor indemnify the customer for third-party IP infringement? All of those things impact ratings and enable us to calculate basically what percent of this contract favors the customer and what percent favors the vendor. And for vendors who have contracts that are either balanced or actually slanting towards the customer, yeah, we issue badges, a sort of stamp of approval to help them communicate that to their customers. And you already mentioned it too, part of this badge process, but it doesn't even have to be part of the process. You offer this as a service too for the users of the software, the ones assigning the contracts, counter to the vendors. You have ratings on TermScout 2 of contracts. Explain that. I think it's a star rating. How do you get five stars versus one star? So today we do rate contracts on a five-star scale. And what that means is basically a one-star is an extremely vendor-favorable contract and a five-star is an extremely customer-favorable contract. I'm happy to announce today, Chad, we're actually on September 1st overhauling our rating system. And what you'll see on our website starting on September 1st is a new rating system that will actually show what percent of the contract favors the customer and the vendor. So it's a bar, basically. And what you'll see is, let's say you look at a contract there, it might say it's 70% customer favorable and 30% vendor favorable. And so we're switching to this system where we've measured all this data and we can actually give you a really clear percentage and moving away from this star system. And I think I saw right now you focus on basically technology contracts, IT services, software, cloud, hardware, stuff like that. But you're moving into other stuff, too. Yeah, so we started with IT contracts, which we define as software, SaaS, cloud, PaaS, stuff like that. That's our bread and butter. We've analyzed tons and tons of contracts there. We have a public database of contracts that has something like 500 of the top B2B vendors contracts published online. You can go to termscout.com and read about all those contracts and compare them and the like. We started in IT, but yes, uh, today we're also in NDAs, services agreements, hardware agreements. By the end of this quarter, we'll be in privacy agreements as well. Uh, next quarter, we'll move into BAAs, you know, a number of other agreements. So we expand agreement type by agreement type. Yeah, so the privacy, I saw you, one of your uh, employees or just posted an interesting article was analyzing data privacy notice obligations. You looked at a bunch, yeah. I think it was 500 or so contracts. I thought that was quite interesting. What I gathered from it is, I guess it's not that surprising. If you're just getting a vendor contract, they're not going to put in very stringent notice requirements. But that, that's, what I think, what you guys figured out. Yeah, we looked at you know 500 or so vendor contracts and asked, how many of these vendors are promising to tell their customers when a data breach impacts that customer's data? And the, I don't remember what the stats were, but the answer was you know, not that many. And then we compared that to a bunch of negotiated contracts right. we've looked at and answered the same question. And it turned out, well, a lot of vendors agree to it when customers actually come and negotiate. And that's a big part of sort of 
the analysis that we're doing at TermScout is trying to better understand what is market, right? We're trying to build this world and the infrastructure for a world where companies can do business on a click accept basis. And in order to get there, you need vendors and customers to come to the middle. And in order to do that, you need to know what the middle is. So we're measuring the middle on 750 data points in IT contracts. It's less in NDAs and whatnot. But we're measuring what that middle is by analyzing tons of contracts, reducing them to structured data so we can actually compare apples to apples there. And it's that analysis that we hope will enable us and our customers to come and say, hey, all those vendors who are starting without that provision, who are not offering a data breach notification policy in their contracts, why don't you guys just come to the middle at the starting point? You know, that's one step that will help you get a TermScout balanced badge, for example. Um, and the more of those steps you take, the less likely you're going to be to end up spending a ton of time negotiating contracts over and over again. Also helps your negotiation too and cuts down on negotiation time because let's just keep talking about this, these data privacy notification contracts you analyzed. Yeah. The vendor contracts very infrequently had notification requirements, but most of the negotiated ones do. So you can easily figure out that if you ask for it, the vendor's probably going to probably can concede and give it to you. So, you know, it's not going to take a, a lot of give and take to get that. So I think that provides some insight there. Yeah, that's exactly right. If you look at the negotiated data, I just pulled up the data here. So for vendor forms, what we saw is basically 34% of vendor forms agree to a data breach notification policy outright. Another 10% do under some uh, circumstances. If you look at negotiated data, it's 55% agree to data breach notification policies outright and 15% under some circumstances. So a total of majority. 7%. Yeah. It's the yeah. vast majority. So you're absolutely right, Chad. What you see quite clearly in the data is this is something that vendors seem to be giving up pretty easily. So why fight it in the first place? Right. You know, that's the big question we're trying to get vendors to ask themselves. Right. So let's talk about the analysis that you're doing under the hood there. So first question is, you said you have a public repository of contracts to be analyzed. Where are you getting these documents? Edgar, I assume public, you know, publicly traded companies, things like that? So we have databases um, of contracts that we've pulled from places like Edgar, certainly. The best source, actually, of vendor forms is the vendor's website. <laughs> you know, yeah. AWS posts their click accept contract that they ask every customer to sign right on their website. And you can go to termscout.com and see how we've rated that contract. And, and you can see how it compares to Microsoft Azure and Google Cloud and SAP and VMware and like 10 other cloud companies contracts because these vendors are trying to do business on a click accept basis. And the best way to do that is post your contract online, let the world see it, and then let the world click accept on it. So that's, you know, it's this movement towards click accept that's actually enabled TermScout to, to get its start and start collecting this data and analyzing it. So once you grab these contracts from wherever, AWS website, Edgar, wherever it is, what happens underneath the hood? What happens on the back end? What are you doing? How do you analyze it? What tech are you using? Two things happen. The first is we run it through our own proprietary machine learning software that we've built in-house that basically tries to answer um, the questions that matter in that contract. Actually, before we even get there, We've broken these contracts down into the questions and answers that matter in those contracts. So when we take on a new contract type, the first thing we do is basically go into that contract type and say, what are all the things that matter in this type of contract? 
What are all the things that we need to be screening for and reporting on? And we go out and build out that kind of questionnaire, basically. Step two is we start ingesting contracts and we use machine learning to try to answer those questions. The machine learning algorithm is answering those questions and identifying the source language from the contract that it relied on to answer those. One of the experiences I had as an attorney trying to use legal tech tools was it was really hard as a lawyer to use pure AI solutions that are, frankly, inherently flawed. Artificial intelligence technology today is, at least all of the AI that I've seen in this space, not quite adequate on its own. <laughs> Certainly not capable of replacing lawyers. No, you noted that no. we don't say anything on our website about we're be- our AI is better than your lawyers or anything like that. That's frankly a ridiculous claim. Um, I cringe when I hear it or see it on other people's websites. It's, it's a bold claim. We don't think our AI is better. Our, AI can be better than lawyers at some things. I'll, I'll grant that, but like not at analyzing contracts wholesale. So we use it as a starting point to make us really efficient, but then everything gets QC'd by real legal professionals on our team. That's a combination of licensed attorneys that do sometimes first pass review and if not quality control or, you know, consultations with non-attorneys who are legal professionals who have worked, you know, have real experience in the space. But they're QCing that AI output basically. And then only after it goes through that QC layer does it get published to our website. Everything goes through that QC layer. And we think our data is the most reliable out there. Well, first, it's actually the only source of data on a lot of the things we publish on. But we're pretty confident that we have the highest accuracy you know, of any company out there in terms of just our ability to accurately answer the questions that we're answering. So let's talk about working with TermScout from a customer's perspective. Let's start with vendors. How do they work with you? What are they, I mean, obviously, what they're trying to get out of you is having you take a look at their contracts and make sure that they are fair, yeah. their, their market standard, but how does it work? Like what, from kind of soup to nuts, how, what's the process? Yeah. So it's, it's actually pretty similar, whether you're a vendor or a buyer of things, what we do is essentially the same. Step one is let's try if you're willing to make your contract great. And by great, I mean, in the middle market, you know, where you're going to land when you negotiate anyways and stop negotiating. That's step one. And that's especially compelling on the vendor side because, you know, the vendor's contract we think is the best contract to use in a commercial transaction. So step one is let's make your contract great. So that's interesting because you can talk to many an in-house attorney. They're not going to agree with that point. So let's, let's uh-huh. unpack that. Why do you think that the, often the vendor's contract is the one to use? So it has to do with what we call fitness for purpose. We think that contracts get negotiated for two reasons. The first is the contract proposed was unfit for purpose. And a great example is like you and I are going to disclose some confidential information and I send you a full-on independent contractor agreement. That is classic unfit for purpose. There's a bunch of stuff in there, IP assignments, all kinds of stuff. You don't need it. This transaction doesn't need it. It's just unfit. The second reason contracts get negotiated is they're outside of market or just outrageous or unrealistic. That's a big one that we're solving too. The fitness for purpose one though is usually solved by using the vendor's paper because the vendor's paper is fit for the purpose that the vendor's tool does. You know, it's built, it's drafted specifically for that tool. Whereas if I go and use buyer's standard PO terms and conditions, their one size fits all contract, it's not going to know what TermScout's business is. You know, it's not going to know what kind of license terms 
I need in my contract. So it's almost necessarily unfit for purpose and likely to get negotiated for that reason. So we can usually eliminate the fitness for purpose need to negotiate by using the contract from the party who is closest to the deal and spent the most time structuring the contract to work for the deal. Makes sense. Makes sense. So they send over their contracts. You're trying to get them in the middle to cut down negotiation. What what are the next steps after that? So after that, it's if your contract is objectively good, if we can get it there, then let's certify it and let's produce materials to help your customers understand it. Let's, you know, help them go to our website where they can get free information about why we certified as balanced and how it really is market. Basically, we've got a ton of data to help you. If it's actually balanced, we can prove that it's not only balanced, it's also market on just about everything. It has to be in order to get a balanced rating. So step two with vendors is let's convince your customers that it's balanced because it's already probably fit for purpose. And if we can convince them that it's balanced and market, maybe, just maybe, you can negotiate a lot less of those contracts. The third part is we know even if you take those two steps and do them really well, you're still going to have customers that want to negotiate. And that's because customers, oftentimes, expectations are outside of market. So even if you're proposing something that's market and fit for purpose, you still may get into the situation where you have to negotiate. So for those circumstances, what we do for both buyers and sellers is we program in a screening tool that enables, it basically enables you to tell us and program into our software, what are your acceptance criteria? So what that looks like is if you're a vendor, we can program into our software, what are your deal breaker items? Let's say that as a vendor, you never agree to um, unlimited liability for data breaches, pretty common position for vendors. And you never agree to indemnify for compliance with laws or negligence. And you got another list of things that you just can't agree to, period. These are deal breakers. Well, we program that into our software. And every time a customer sends you either their paper or a red line to your paper, we become the first pass review of that contract. And we tell you based on your criteria, whether or not it's acceptable. And it's a little more, I'm simplifying a little bit. There's a little more like, if this, then that complexity to this programming that we do. But basically it's a, it's a compliance tool. It helps you understand whether a contract within a glance, complies with your playbook based on all those structured data points that we're measuring within that contract. So it's it's effectively a way to um, fast track a lot of your contract negotiations that do, do take place. To summarize, basically it's, let's make your contract great so you reduce negotiations, but when you do have to negotiate, let's immediately identify all the things that the other party is asking for that are acceptable based on your playbook Take those off the table so you can focus only on those things that are truly deal breakers. I noticed too on your website, you offer services to procurement. What's that offering? Yeah, and most of our customers, actually it's probably 75% of our customers are on the procurement side and 25% on the, on the sell side today. And the procurement side is very similar. A lot of the times we're helping them make their buyer terms reasonable so that they can actually look at a vendor and say, we know you're used to getting bad PO terms and conditions, but we've actually worked with TermScout to make them reasonable. That's one thing that we do. But the biggest thing that we do is this compliance, this contract compliance screening tool that I mentioned. So we work with companies to program in what their acceptable criteria are. And it depends, you know, it's different criteria. If it's, a, if it's an IT contract that's going to touch the crown jewel data assets of my company and where we're spending a million dollars, that's a different set of acceptance criteria that we program in than if it's a $5,000 a year tool that doesn't touch any data, et cetera. So we basically have this tiered risk system 
that says that first asks what level of risk is involved in this contract and then applies the appropriate screening criteria and then produces essentially a report card on that contract that tells our customers, this one meets your requirements, you can sign it. Or this one doesn't meet your requirements, but it's close and you're only off on these few things. All of it is calibrated around what's market. So what we're trying to do with procurement organizations is help them basically set up those screening criteria based on what's market. And when they do that, what we find is we can actually fast track a lot of contracts and get them out of procurement's hands, out of legal's hands, and get them fast tracked to approval. You know, the other cool thing I noticed too that you guys do, and it's logical extension of what you're talking about here for procurement and making sure from the buy side, the requirements are reasonable. The RFP assist, I thought that was cool. You can give all the contracts that have been submitted via an RFP and you can rank them and you can say, look, these are the ones closest to what you're looking for. These are the ones that are off. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, if you're in an RFP process, one of the factors you may want to consider, I'm not saying it's the only factor, but one factor is how hard is it going to be to contract with this party? And if I'm a CTO of an organization thinking about a new cloud partner, for example, having my procurement organization be able to look at TermScout ratings and TermScout data and be able to say, this vendor I bet we can get to contract to in two months because they're pretty reasonable and you know we can probably get there. This other vendor, it might take us 12 months based on experience because you know they're way out of the ballpark in terms of what's market. That's really valuable data for me as a business user to know when I'm thinking about which of these vendors to select. Otto, thanks for your time today. If people want to learn more about TermScout and get a hold of you, where do they go? Yeah, so check out our website. On September 1st, we're launching a ton of free content. All the content that I described here today on public contracts, totally free for everyone. So if you want to go learn what's market for data breach notification provisions or data security provisions or limits on liability, you want to geek out on some contract stuff, Go check out our website, take advantage of the free data. And if you want more information, uh, find me on LinkedIn. I'm easy to find on Twitter, Otto Hansen, and would love to, to chat. That's it for today. I appreciate you listening. If you enjoyed what you heard today, I hope you tell a friend about the podcast and subscribe. You can find us on pretty much every major podcasting platform. If you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on LinkedIn or email me at cmain at percipient.co. And that's C-M-A-I-N at percipient.co. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.